Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? Episode 60 of the Howie Games is what you are listening to. Thanks for tuning in. 60. We at the Howie Games are pretty happy with that. So many lost and left behind And no one seemed to care Those who should seem like they're blind Pretending they're not there Can't they see they hold the key Could make things better if they try Oh my Jaja, tell me why Won't they open up their eyes This week's app involves a true grade of Australian swimming, nine Olympic medals, 11 Commonwealth Games medals, of which 10 were gold, a seven-time world champion and a four-time Olympian, the first Australian swimmer to achieve the feat. Liesl Jones is a legend of her sport. Well, she's raced past the red line. She's a half a body length in front of the red line. Liesl Jones looking at a world record. It'll be the third in the pool. Jones is absolutely blitzing the red line. She is marvellous. She is great. The best breaststroker in the world by a country mile. Liesl is a wonderful woman and no doubt an outstanding Australian. Her story is one of someone who had nothing and through an enormous amount of hard work, retired with a career that had everything. But Liesl's story isn't just one of gold medals and victories. It's also a story of heartbreak, of defeat, of mental health issues, and at times stinging criticism that, to be completely frank with you from where I sit, probably reflects poorly on us as a country rather than on Liesl as an athlete. But most of all, this is a story of never giving up, of overcoming time and time again, which is why it is a perfect story for this podcast. Enjoy Liesl. Jones, OAM. So when you search and then you find and know just where to go and thoughts that once used to cloud your mind, you see clearly and now you know mystery, what is to be revealed in King Selassie. I come on, children, try it with me. We want to reach Mount Zion. Liesl Jones, for me, a.k.a. always known as the champ. <laughs> Welcome to the Howie Games. How are you? Thank you. I'm good. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I'm excited you're here. I think it's people won't realise, but you realise that you're my favourite swimmer of all time. Um, I've interviewed you a million times on the pool deck. Um, and I must say right at the start... Um, I made a lot of money out of you. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people say that or the opposite, that they no, lost a lot of money on me. So <laughs> no, I've made a lot and I've taken a lot off uh, Lockie Reed and Nicole Livingston. Yes. Who used to do the swimming at 10 um, and we'd always get to the Australian Championships and to keep it interesting over the week and a half <laughs> staying out at uh, the Pullman at Homebush, we'd be like, righto, let's put each race and I had a theory, never bet against a champ. And I'm it- surprised Nicole uh, bit a uh, bit like betted against me. Not very often. No, but I, I was consistent. Yes. I, you could have been diving in in the fifteen hundred meter freestyle, <laughs> and I would have been against Grant Hackett. Uh, against Grant Hackett, <laughs> and I would have been on the chance. You um, might have lost money on that one. I think. <laughs> uh, you look fantastic, and soon to be married. I am. Yes. So I'm very much <laughs> full on in wedding prep. And Damo said something funny to me the other day. He goes, "I think after the like, if you plan your own wedding, you should automatically get a cert three in event planning because yes. the amount of effort and time and forethought that goes into it is just ludicrous. And I'm not a bridey bride. I'm not one of those people that's been dreaming about my wedding f- since I was 12. So for me, it's been it's been a real struggle, I think, to sort of get everything organised and not reala- realising 
how much effort goes into it. And I think I took other people's weddings for granted when I was a guest. Yeah. So now that I'm organising it, I've got respect for other brides. So, yeah, it's pretty tricky, but it's, it should be a really fun day, but a very expensive day as well. So When are you getting married? Uh, 4th of August. 4th of August. So yes. by the time this podcast goes out, you will be Mrs. Martin. Mrs. Martin. Yes. Tell me about Mr. Martin. Mr. Martin, yeah, he's a, we have a heap of fun. So we've both got pretty high energy levels, which is pretty good, I guess. Um, but, yeah, we just have a really great time. We've got our dog Neville, Nev, uh, Nev, Nev dog, a uh, little Staffy. He's a rescue dog. Um, yeah, so we've got a pretty good life. We um, he works really hard, and yeah, we just we just have a lot of fun. So that's good, and we um, share a very mutual great love for dumplings. So that's dumplings. always yeah, right. Shaolong Bao, always <laughs> my favourite. So good. Um, it's funny with swimmers because, like gymnasts, you start. Um, so young, and you were even younger than most. How old were you when you officially retired? I was 27 when I retired. So, retired. Most of us retire at 65. You've retired at 27. How's life been since you stopped swimming? Because it's not retiring, because retiring's done with life in a lot of ways. Yeah, kind of, but sort of a closing of a career segment. So it is. it has all the same emotional ties to a normal retirement. And a lot of people, I think the question I get probably asked the most is, do you miss it? Yeah. And I always relate it back to someone who has a nine to five job and you work in an office and you drive to the city every day and you go to work, you work nine to five and then you go home and you do that for probably about 25 years of your life doing the same thing every day. And then when you retire, just going back to do it for fun like just checking into the office for fun. I don't swim for fun anymore. It was my job and it was my work and so I don't really enjoy swimming anymore and it's not because I hate the sport, it's just because that was my job for so long. So Do you ever swim now or not? Never. Right. No. So we live really near to the – very close to the beach and I don't swim at all. So when was the last time you would have swum laps? Ah. Uh, Probably maybe a couple of years ago, okay. but since I've retired six years ago, I have not done a proper session as such. Like if I've done a celebrity race or something, yep. I'll do a 50 metres, but that's it. I won't do any extra. That's it. So in terms of proper racing, I haven't haven't done anything. The career itself and, and, you know, you're the only Australian swimmer to go to four Olympics, nine Olympic medals, which is you and Thorpey at the top of the tree. It, it's – we can talk about that side first. It How do you reflect Jonesy on it? Because it was a phenomenally – successful and long career at the top. Like, it was an amazing career. I think a little bit of luck comes into that as well. Yes, I worked really hard to keep achieving things and to stay on the team. It was That was a lot of hard work. But it, an element of luck comes into it because I was lucky enough to start early. So I was 14 when I was selected for my first Olympic Games in 2000. And that allowed me to have a longer career. So if, you, if you're not really making teams until about 18, maybe 22, mm. you, you're, realistically your career will only be two or th- – I don't say only. I mean to make an Olympic Games is amazing. But you would probably only get two or three Olympics max. So I had that that I was lucky enough to make four Olympic Games, but I'd had enough by the end of it. So it was a very long career for a swimmer particularly um, and to be the first person to go for Olympic Games and at 
you know, by 2012 to be the first person to do that. It's not like, you know, 30 years ago you didn't have the opportunity. It's like we still, it's just a long slog to make it to four Olympic Games and to have such a career for such a long period of time. I was very lucky to have that and also very lucky to keep making teams. I was, I still had enough skill and work behind me that I could still make teams towards the end of my career. It wasn't just, you know, a sympathy card that you're coming towards the end of your career, you mm. still make the Olympic team. I still was very much on the team. I just, and I was just talking about it before I hit record, I just read your book, Body Lengths, uh, and congratulations on it. And Thank congratulations you. to the lady that wrote it. Yeah, Felicity's Fel- amazing. It, it is, a f- it's a phenomenal read, but it's beautifully written as well. It's and we'll d- we'll discuss some of the themes in it. And any of these chats with people that have achieved a lot, they've had highs and lows. I um, I felt a bit. What's the word? I was almost a bit disappointed in myself that I must have interviewed you in a pool deck situation forty times. Um, and that's the only side of you I ever saw or knew this person jumping out of the pool typically after winning I was really um almost upset that I had no idea about the other sides of your life that came to light when I read that book champ I think a lot of people said that as well and even people that I had been on teams with and not apologizing but sort of saying I guess yeah I'm really sorry that I wasn't there for you I had no idea but that's also a case of I didn't tell people that I didn't allow people in enough to talk about that openly and I guess when you're an athlete as well, it's kind of you don't want to give too much away to your competitors that you're struggling with mental health issues or that you're not doing very well in life at the moment or and you don't want to give any opportunity for them to to go, "Oh great, I'm in. I can beat that person." So, not that that was heavily weighing in the back of my mind at the time, but I think subconsciously I was probably aware that that was the situation. So looking back, I go, uh, absolutely, I wasn't going to give that up. So how do you know to even ask the question when on the outside it looks totally normal and most people look pretty normal every single day and you have no clue that someone that you're working with every single day is dealing with mental health issues or what's going on behind the scenes because they make it look okay and it's socially acceptable to look that way and you hear... You looked okay the whole oh, time. Oh, totally. Absolutely. And I guess also too, it's kind of kind of trying to convince yourself you're okay too because then you can co- kind of trick yourself into thinking you're okay and, and not really dealing with the issues that were underlying. And I stuffed it down for so long that it just blew up in my face and that was by far the wrong way to go about it and just really exploded and I didn't know how to deal with it. Whereas if I had worked with it before and maybe recognised some signs earlier, I might have got help earlier and it may not have ended in that way. So in in everyone else's defence, they could never have asked the right questions because you wouldn't have a clue mm. because most days I was just getting by or dealing with the questions in my head of, well, you're a swimmer, but what are you going to do when you retire? Or what's going to happen? Who are you if you're not a swimmer? And taking that identity away, it was such a tricky thing because I was dealing with that in my own head, but I'm not necessarily going to give that information to other people. No, understandably. Let's start at the start. 
Why don't you drink your fancy Earl Grey tea there? Mm-hmm. Let's start at the start. I gave up coffee three months ago. Did so you? this is my substitute. How so many coffees were you on? I had five long blacks in a day. Right. One day, all double shots. So that's 10 shots of coffee. Wow. Yes. Tell me about it because I, yeah. I, I'm a non-coffee drinker. Oh, I've, are I've, you? I've never had a coffee in my life. Oh, But wow. I can see the beautiful, beautiful Mrs. Howard once every two years. She'll say, right, I'm going to stop drinking coffee. Yes. And for three days, she is a freaking Awful. nightmare. Awful. And she's the world's most beautiful woman. How are you? Well, I had tried it before and I was awful that time. Just like, I will never function without coffee. My life is not worth living without coffee. It was my crutch for so long. And it actually pains me because when I walked in here to come and chat to you, Howie, it was, uh, there's a lot of coffee shops downstairs with their coffees advertised and the sound of the milk frothing (laughs) and the smell of the grind of coffee and that just that whiff of like 5am where you go, oh, I can get up for a coffee. I will get out of bed for coffee. And unfortunately, Earl Grey tea just doesn't cut it for me. But Were you like, were you getting headaches and all that stuff? I was. I had withdrawals, but it's more emotional for me. It's a real emotional key for me to get through life is coffee and mm. um so why do you want to give it away well after swimming oh, i keep bumping my phone um after swimming i, s- I suffered from adrenal fatigue so it's not actually recognized as a medical condition i don't really know why but just that chronic fatigue of every single day of pushing my body for six hours a day six days a week for 20 probably 20 years of my life I would say um just really did it just took its toll on my body and I was just tired all the time and so I thought well I'm living off five coffees a day five long blacks I need to do something about this so I just cut it out and yeah I do miss it but I think I feel healthier for it yeah and you're done now. You've put it behind you. I've put it behind you're me. Grows. I, I've, I've got an emotional trigger with coffee, just the right. sound of coffee brewing. It right. really triggers something in me. But look, Earl Grey's a good substitute. It's for my health. So look, if I can get off coffee, anyone can get okay. off coffee. I'm there telling you now. Right. I might send uh, Erica to do that when yeah. she goes on holiday for a week by herself or something. Little little Liesl, tell me, where, where was little Liesl born? You were born a long way from the water. I was. I was born in Catherine in the Northern Territory where Cadell Evans was actually born as well. So... A lot of, I think, talented athletes come out of there because you've got no choice but to do anything other than sport. So uh, my parents were living in Wave Hill, which is even further out of Catherine. Um, they were just travelling around Australia in a bus. And, yeah, I happened they were based in Catherine when I was born. What so, do you mean they were travelling around Australia? This sounds cool. Yeah, so they travelled around Australia in a bus. Um, my half-brothers went as well and they did School of the Air. Wow. So in the 80s, yep. Um, and obviously work for them. They're very talented working at Qantas as a mechanical engineer and um, car mechanic like so very smart people and yeah it was really fascinating and I to me that was totally normal to grow up that way I mean I only lived in Catherine for six months but you weren't born in the bus no, I wasn't born in a right. bus. I was born in a hospital, right. yes, uh, in a, an Aboriginal community. So, right. yeah, it was um, really just a great, interesting way to be brought into the world, I think, and how lucky, like in one of the most beautiful, gorgeous places on earth, the Catherine Gorge is just, yeah, is. I mean, I was six months old, so I couldn't really enjoy it as much. But, yeah, it's. I like that I was born there. I'm really proud to be born in the Territory. It's a, Yeah, it's an amazing place. Uh, so your folks were like, were they um, 
had they given up jobs and stuff or what were they doing that they were just travelling around in a bus? More so saving money, I think. Um, They were living in Sydney at the time, both growing up in Sydney. So, yeah, it was just about having jobs and my dad worked as a plumber and I think my mum was doing a bit of community work. And so, yeah, it was just about saving money. They didn't have to pay rent or (laughs) didn't have to buy a house because they lived in a bus. And, yeah, it was pretty... Pretty interesting. Yeah. Pretty cool. Like just, and you hear of a lot of parents do it now. People go, I'm going to pull my kids out of school and travel around Australia in a van or whatever. So it's pretty much the same thing. I don't think they have school of the air anymore. I'm not sure. Actually, no, maybe they do. But it was just just about living life and it was just about enjoying a different lifestyle that they could afford. So how long with you as, as, a, as a baby, how long were they living that life? I'm not sure how long before I came along, but it was only six months after right. and then we moved back to Sydney. Right. And yep. so where does Liesl Jones all of a sudden meet a swimming pool and at what age? So I was two when I learned to swim in Woi Woi in Sydney on the central coast. And yeah, it was a very traumatic experience, my first swimming lesson. Was it, it was Well, actually not my very first one. I enjoyed Woi Woi, but when I moved to Brisbane in Sydney, for some reason they had taught kids to swim with floaties on, which gives you this really false sense of it's you would never do that now because it's just it gives you a false sense of flotation and when I moved to Brisbane they obviously didn't do it they were hardcore and just threw kids into the pool and I sunk to the bottom <laughs> and I stayed there for a long time and the teacher said just leave her she'll come back up soon and I really didn't and yeah had to be fished out of the pool and I sat in the car and cried so I think I was probably about three at the time or something so yeah it was not a good start and it just goes to show your career doesn't have to be, you know, amazing with the mm. most perfect start. It can be terrible and still be a good career. So, yeah, I think there's probably life lessons in there somewhere, I'm sure. So what were you into before swimming really took hold? Was What type of operator were you at school and that type of thing? Uh, I was always a sporty kid, I think, and I'm, I look back very fondly on my schooling time because I was hardly there, so that probably helped, but I loved it. I was always really active and riding bikes and um, always playing in the backyard pool and um, I wasn't necessarily a water baby, but I... I loved my swimming fraternity. I loved hanging out and catching up with swimming kids before and after school. And that's where I felt like I really belonged was with my swimming friends. That's where that was my world and that was everything. And they were always different to my school friends. So I always had this really broad range of friends that range from school to swimming. So I I just kind of did everything like... I tried tennis. I was not very good at that, although I enjoy tennis very much now. And I'm a one-eyed Serena Williams fan, like just, yep, crazy about it. Um, (laughs) But I just tried everything and I just wasn't very good and nothing stuck. So swimming did stick and I was kind of okay at it. So I just kept going. Kind of okay. So you weren't at a typical swimming carnival. I know we're swimming against Liesl Jones. No, right, absolutely not. I don't think I really showed any talent in swimming at all. Really, because I sort of think about when I was probably 10 or 11, I don't think, I never made, so there was this team I remember and I missed out on it and I think I was probably about maybe 12, probably about 13 at the time and it was like a youth Pampax team or something and the girl that was selected in the breaststroke, I was like, oh, I didn't make it. I was never selected and I thought I'm never, I'm not good enough for this. So, And then two years later I'm on the Olympic <laughs> team. So, you know, that worked out pretty well for me. But I do remember not making teams. I was not selected and there's kind of like a crossover age, like that 12, 13, and you see it in kids all the time where 
girls particularly drop out of sport at that 12, 13 years of age, have either got other focus or just don't really want to do sport. And then the other people who are sort of coming second, third, fourth, then rise up to the top and they're the ones that winning and then take their career to the next, you know, direction. It's just, yeah, they, it's kind of, it's very strange when you watch it because all the people that were age of 12 and winning events and smashing all the other kids just didn't continue with the sport anymore. You mentioned Cadell Evans and you mentioned in your book there was an opportunity to meet him and I, I had the um, <laughs> great pleasure to, to have him on the Howie Games and, and he was talking to me about the fact that, um, you know, it was his mum that brought him up and, yep. and that was Very a similar much. situation for you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my mum was everything and to me that was totally normal just to have a mum and not really have a dad around too much and, yeah, I just – my mum just did everything for me. She just dropped her whole life to make sure that I was okay and that I still had my education, that I played sport, that I was a well-rounded kid and I'm just so thankful for that. It's just – I think everyone should have a rosemary in their life because, yeah, that's, your mom. Yeah, that's my mum, <laughs> a, um, a rosemary, because, yeah, she just, she was so, you know, just wasn't selfish and, you know, it wasn't about her. She just dropped everything for me and I don't think I could have been as successful if it weren't for her. So, yeah. Can I ask you about your dad? Yeah, yeah. I'm very open about that, I think, because there's a lot of people that suffer or have family issues but my issues were totally normal to me, so I'm not sort of angry about them. So what happened? You, your mum and your dad split up? Yep, when I was about 12. So it's a pretty yeah. formative time in your life. Like you're sort of figu- figuring things out and you're going through puberty and it's a very awkward time in life and you're sort of you, – you, I think you're becoming more aware of family values and uh, how other people live their lives. You sort of get a glimpse into their life and you go, oh, hang on, your life is not like my life. And you never realise that anything was different before. And um, But because my dad wasn't really around when I was a kid, it wasn't a huge shock to me. It wasn't like, you know, my dad was a huge part of my life and then he wasn't. He just was never really there. So I didn't feel any different when he left. It was kind of, it was just mum and I, and it was mum and I all along. So I'm not, you know, so many kids are going through this right now and kids have been through it before and kids will in the future go through this as well. But, And I hope that it comes a time if I have children that, you know, you want to make sure that even if that does happen, that the transition is spoken about because I think children are very smart and they understand what's going on and that they need a say in what happens in their life. And as much as my choice was made for me, I think it was the right choice. Um, but yeah, I think kids need to have a say because they're aware of what's going yeah. on. Gee, it must be. Like, I think of my kids now that are eight and six, and I think in four, you know, if my daughter was twelve and I disappear, I I can't imagine the effect that would have on her. Yeah. Like, how how was it for you? I didn't know any different, and that probably sounds a little bit strange, but for me, it was no different to not have that sort of father figure around because. When I was doing sport, I was very lucky to be surrounded by very influ- like good influential males in my life that might have been 18, 20, even um, Ken Wood, my coach at the time, when I was 13, he was... He just recently passed away. Just recently passed away. It was... Uh, I went through a period of grieving over that. That was because he played such a big role in my life in that really crucial stage, you know, 12 to 13, 14-year-old he had such a big impact on my life for the positive. And so 
as much as it wasn't a case of I couldn't speak to him again, it was that he had such a positive impact on my life at a time when my dad was leaving my life and he was kind of feeling it. So as much as he was, what, probably about 70 at the time? Yeah, Ken. Ken, yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, he just filled that spot for me and stepped in and just he was such a caring man that, yeah, he just looked after all of us. But I had that kind of good influence. I had people like Jeff Hugel and um, as much as he was an 18-year-old man sort of you know, probably doing 18-year-old man things, Mm. he was still such a positive influence on my life that I had that good male relationship with people to guide me through. So I don't feel like I missed out at all. Um, And I never felt angry or negative towards my dad or anything. So I feel like if you hold anger or you hold a grudge or you hold on to that bitter part, I think then you've got issues, but I never did. I was never angry. Last week on the Howie Games, we had the great man, Andrew Simons, as a guest. It was a greasy night in Brisbane. We were playing (laughs) India in a final. And from memory, my memory's not great, but from memory, we were in trouble again. And they were up us. And I think at the time, I think I'd just run Hados out. And so I'm thinking... I can now think of 10 better places to be than in that dressing room at Hados, so I need to stay out here for as long as possible till he calms down. <laughs> so I'm going about my business, trying to sort of get a bit of a partnership going, and um, and then this bloke runs on, on the field. And as I said earlier in the podcast, I said, we go to all these pre-season things we're doing, safety and racism and drugs, and we have to sign off on all these things, right? So this bloke, he's a fit, rangy-looking bloke, jumps the fence over near what would have been the Brisbane Lions social club over the far side of the ground. And he starts running out in the middle. So the crowd's gone, erupted, right? He's got nothing on but a stubby cool around his right wrist, I think. <laughs> and there's a, a very overweight police, Queensland policeman in not hot pursuit, but he's nearly going backwards. And he's he's got the world's biggest two-way, which has come unclipped off his belt, and it's bouncing on the ground behind him as he's trying to make tracks on this bloke. And then there's a couple of sort of Asian security guards in high-vis shirts coming from all different angles. Anyway, so this bloke, no one's getting close to this bloke. He's way too good for him. And he comes out, he's coming towards the middle now. He's, he's inside the 30-yard circle, and the crowd's loving it. They can't catch him. The, so he starts... He looks out towards me and he looks at me and I sort of locked eyes on him and I sort of smiled and I went, oh, come over here, dickhead. <laughs> that was Roy on last week's show. Back to Liesl. This may in no way apply to you. It comes back, we're talking about Cadell. There's, but I read a fascinating article, Jonesy, about Tour de France winners over the last 30 years and how many of them came from single families and so many of them, whether it was... Lance or Cadell or so many of them uh, uh, are in that situation. They felt they had something to prove. Do you relate to that at all or not? I think something to prove would be correct, absolutely. But also sport becomes your solace. It becomes something that you can throw yourself into 100%. You can spend all your days doing sport generally because you love it. So you're doing something you love and then you sort of forget about all the things that happen outside of your life. So 
anything could be happening outside and you wouldn't have a clue because you're in the bubble of sport. And, yeah, you throw yourself into it full time, you forget about everything else. So as much as, yeah, I see both there, I I think for me personally swimming was just my love and I was good at it and I could achieve things and, yeah, it just kind of – it was my bubble. It was my world. It was – as soon as I left school, I was in my swimming bubble and when I left my swimming bubble – I would wait for four AM the next morning to go back to the swimming bubble. So yeah, it's. Um, I think it was just something to throw myself into. I want to talk to you about that that training with Ken. And I got to say, when Channel Ten first got the swimming, whatever year it was, and it was Nicole Livingston and Anthony Hudson were calling, and I was on the pool deck, and you know, I knew the difference between breaststroke and backstroke and butterfly, but I, I had no idea who swam what and I was like, who are these people? They'd get out of the pool and you'd think, oh, who no. is this? They've got their goggles on, <laughs> right? Is this? And i got to say, Ken Wood was the first person that really embraced me and he pulled me aside one day and he's like, young fella, I see you're new to this. If you need anything, any time, you come and ask me. Oh, wow. So I've always got a really fond memory of that because when you cross different sports, some people are great to you and others can be really harsh. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I was, it saddened me the other day to, to see he'd passed away because he, he was fantastic to me. But reading your book, I didn't understand at such a young age the amount of work an athlete could be doing. Yeah. Tell me about you and Ken as a as a 14, 15-year-old leading up to what became a seminal moment for you and I guess the Australian titles when you were 15. Well, I had come from probably a 13-year-old, very shy, very uncomfortable, very awkward. I was a big fish in a small pond. I was in a squad that I was very much outgrowing. My talent was far exceeding probably the limit of the coach that I had at the time. So I had to make another move in the pool. Yep, absolutely. And I had to move somewhere else and just to expand and see where we could go with it. And Ken was the next choice because he was in in Redcliffe, so it wasn't too far away. We could sort of make the move um, and was the next feasible option. And so I just remember walking in the door at um, Ken's pool and Ken was so amazing and this is why we were so lucky to be able to just even be in his presence really, was he always taught so many skills and everything he did had a lesson. Whether you knew it or not at the time and whether he told you or not at the time, everything had a lesson. And I still use it now just if I'm ever worried about something or I'm ever scared or I don't trust in my talents or what I'm doing, I always think about the first time that I walked into the pool deck at Ken's pool and just almost, I guess, Ken's voice in the back of my head saying, what would he say in this moment? And he he would probably tell me in, in probably less words, but just, you know, cut the bullshit, just get rid of it, you don't need it and just get the job done. And I don't care what's happened before, I don't care what's happening tomorrow, I care what's happening now and just get in and get the work done. And he was by far the toughest coach I've ever worked with, but I'm so lucky that I had it at a time where I had to learn about working hard, discipline, um, doing things you didn't want to do, not whinging about things, um, being pushed beyond your limits that you even thought were possible, um, but always doing it in a caring manner that he was always doing it for your benefit. He didn't care about anything else. It was so long as that you got what you needed out of it. And I, I am not surprised to hear your story that he came up and asked you if there yeah. was anything he could do because that's the kind of person he was. He was he always just cared about other people's well-being and other people's success. He wanted everyone to be successful. If he could have had every single one of his athletes on the Olympic team, that would make him so happy. Huh. So he was just 
really one of the most amazing people and I went to his memorial, it was quite a few weeks ago now, he had, I reckon, over 300 people in the room and that just goes to show the impact he had on people's lives and I'm just very fortunate at that turbulent time in my life that I had Ken's guidance there to just strip everything away, focus on what you wanted to achieve and how you were going to achieve it. I still use so many of those skills today that he taught me and um, so many of his sayings that he uses and yeah, it's I'm very, very fortunate to have come and things happen for a reason. I think I was drawn energetically to him somehow. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I'm very, very lucky to have a man like Ken Wood in my life. So what was a training what was a day in full training as a fifteen year old with Ken Wood? How did it start? What was the day? Oh, it probably was pretty brutal. So we used to start at four we had to be on pool deck at four thirty in the morning. And so if how you, did you get to the pool? Your mum? My mum dropped me off. Right. Yeah. So a lot wow. of mothers used to sleep in the car right. outside the pool because right. they would drop the kids off to training. At what time? Four o'clock. Four o'clock. Yep. And I remember Josh Crow, a guy I used to swim with, he used to live at Sippy Downs on the Sunshine Coast. He used to drive from there to Redcliffe, which is over an hour drive, you know, at four o'clock in the morning. So he used to get up at three o'clock, drive himself to training and get himself there. And I just always remember the dedication of those people to get to training because they wanted to train with Ken. Just And Ken's theory, and I still use it today, if you're not five minutes early, you're late. Right. So I'm always on time. For, I was you early were. today. I was, I'm always awkwardly early, whether it's probably half an hour, at least 10 minutes. If I'm not early, that something's happened. But that's the skill that he taught me, that it's it's out of respect for the person that you're showing up for. And I always find people who consistently turn up late, it's disrespecting the other person. It means you don't respect their time enough to turn up. And so for us, turning up on time for Ken was res- us our way of respecting Ken for turning up on time. And it's like, if you want to work here, I will shut the doors at 4.30 if you're not in, then you don't train. And that was your disadvantage. It wasn't a case of, oh, that's a shame. No, no. You don't get to swim. That's your disadvantage by not being able to train that day. So, yeah, we had to take the pool covers off at 4.30 in the morning with freezing cold hands. And, yes, Brisbane does get cold yes. at some t- sometimes. And, um, yeah, we'd be in the water, I think, at 4.45 in the morning. And typically for me, a session would be six or seven kilometres, if not more. Sometimes we did 10-kilometre sessions, 10 sessions a week, so 100-kilometre weeks. Uh, yeah, so, so tra- you finish in the morning and go to school? Go to school, yep, straight to school. We'd probably finish about six thirty, seven o'clock, have some breakfast at the pool, go straight to school, which was next door, finish probably about 3, I think, 3 or 3.30, and then straight to the pool, 4 o'clock for another session. Wow. So which was 4 till 6 p.m. And then race home, have some dinner, go to bed, starts again the next day. Did you just sleep like a baby? Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> just as, I think you're like a zombie mostly, and that's what I don't miss is that, this time of day, I would just be brain mush, you yeah. know, just can't function. I, I miss that f- level of fitness, but I don't miss that f- just tired all the time. You, you, well, you did, you burst onto the scene all of a sudden, you would have been, what were you, 14 when you made the Olympic yep. team? Yeah. And then 15 at the home Olympics. It's, it's, it's amazing reading your book mentally how you feel about the four Olympics you go to. That's right. And Sydney was just, for the rest of Australia, I was like, how can this girl be as a 15-year-old? And you just seem completely reading, just unaffected by it. Didn't yeah. even almost understand the 
supposed importance of it. That's right. And I, th- I wouldn't have it any other way because if I knew, I would have been intimidated. I would have, I was pretty oblivious to all of it, really. I mean, I watched Sam Riley in the 96 Olympics and I, as much as I say, like I dreamt of being an Olympian, I didn't take it real, like it wasn't a realistic thing for me in my mind that I was capable of doing it. So it was kind of a shock when I made the team. And then when I got to the Olympics, I was kind of like, I never thought, oh my God, you're at the Olympic Games. This is real deal stuff at 15. (laughs) And the next person to me in age was 18. So, and she was my roommate. Her name was Sibylla Good. So really an 18 year old and a 14 year old has nothing in common. You know, or I was 15, but had just turned 15 the week before. And so I didn't have anything in common with anyone on the team. And yet I had to get by in a group of probably 60 people, 20 swimmers and Oh, probably 30, uh, 40 swimmers and 20 support staff. And these were the, these are the Thorps and yes. the Klims and the Hackett's and, you know, this That's is right. legends. These, yeah, and Kieran Perkins, yeah. you know, like these people uh, will be forever etched in history as legends of our sport and of Australian sport in general. And yet here I am sitting eating, you know, ham sandwich next to them. So, <laughs> and that's how simple it was. But I was so fortunate to be a part of a team. And it wasn't until the end of my career that I realised the how amazing this team was because I had people like Susie O'Neill who would look after me. And as much as she probably had many other things on her mind, she had all the pressure of, you know, winning gold medals because she was realistically able to do that. She had all the pressure and all the weight on her shoulders to achieve that and yet she still had time to look out for me and make sure I was doing okay and everyone cared about each other, didn't matter what age they were or where they came from. I had uh, I was lucky enough to have Catherine Freeman on this show. Isn't she a beautiful about, human oh, being? She's, oh, she's, amazing. She's the best. She's she's a wonderful, wonderful and woman. And the funniest woman you'll ever oh. meet, and yet no one knows. No, she's no. the funniest. No, yeah. very. And she's got the world's greatest laugh. Oh, I, yes. I related a story to her the night she won gold about I, I was working there as assistant director on the volleyball and I managed to sneak in an open gate and watched her, watched her um, run. And equally, um, purely by fluke, um, the volleyball used to finish during the day so it was like having a golden ticket but the volleyball pass didn't get you into the swimming finals um, and I actually around the back of an OUB truck there was a ladder and I half jumped a fence Josie and snuck in and saw you as a 15 year old win an Olympic silver medal and you looked you were 15 but you looked like 7 on the podium (laughs) tell me about that race and that night. Well, the girl that beat me, Megan Gendrick, her name is now, um, Megan Kwan when she swam, but um, she was only 16. So she was only a year older than me. I don't know what breaststrokers do, but we always seem to be very young. And so she wasn't much older than me. I had never met her before in my life. Um, and you've got to remember back then, we didn't have social media no. like we do now. So you didn't you didn't follow them on social media. You weren't friends on Facebook. It didn't exist. So you didn't know anything about these people. And it was a bit of a shock when you get next to them. You didn't know their racing technique because there wasn't YouTube to watch what how their style is and... I, you just went in blind. so And it was probably a great thing because all you could do was do your best. You couldn't compare yourself to other people. You didn't know what their training was like or whether they had done amazing times. You just had to focus on your own race. And so 
Um, I remember Susie O'Neill used to always say that. She used to put curtains down on her lane so that she couldn't see anyone else when she was swimming. Mentally. Mentally, yeah. Um, imagine if she yeah. really did. She got out there, she's <laughs> reeling them out on the lane ropes, the big black curtains, like, oh, Susie O'Neill's brought her own curtains. Um, yeah, and so, yeah, mentally sort of just block everything else out and focus on your own race and I think that really worked for me but yeah I was a gangly 15 year old looked so much younger than what I was and um, it's come in handy now that I'm 32 because I feel like I look like I'm about 25 so that's handy Mm. and um, yeah so it was just a real blur I don't remember much about it and you know the only thing that probably disappoints me the most was because it's my home Olympics everyone knew I was 15 so I couldn't even pretend to get into nightclubs because everyone's <laughs> like I saw you on the front page of the paper you're 15 go away this uh, this um, you know fake ID is not getting you anywhere so I couldn't even pretend because my face literally would be on the paper that's on the ground that the security guard's just been reading it's like yeah that's me so I couldn't even pretend so so how do, how does one as a 15 year old celebrate um Olympic medals because there was medals for you at yeah. that games. Mm. Uh, McDonald's, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> because wow, yeah, I'm, what a party! And <laughs> couldn't even drink, couldn't do anything, and yeah, you, because there's free McDonald's in the village. Uh, I don't know if they, I think they've stopped it now. I'm not sure. Um, it certainly was in London. I'm not sure about Rio. But, yeah, there's free McDonald's, so you celebrate with a soft serve and, yeah, all the banned items that you're not allowed to eat. And um, I think I was probably eating too many McDonald's cookies. I don't think they have those anymore, but they certainly oh, did yeah, when I was 15. Little, little the hamburger. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, the yeah. one. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's a bit of a blast from the past. But that was my life. I was 15. I was very innocent. I was very... Oh, I really, that's the only way I could celebrate. So all my friends were 18 and above, so they all went out partying and I got stuck in the village <laughs> like a loser. <laughs> when you go past that, and I guess the next eight years you, you go and we'll get to Athens and, and, and Beijing, um, in, in some ways you became a, uh, would it be fair to say you almost became a bit, a, 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 from a very young age, a breadwinner? Yeah, for your family. Yep. Um, it's not like you and your mum had lots and lots of money by any stretch. Not at all. No. So, and I did feel that pressure very much so, and I speak a lot about that in my book. And I, because my dad wasn't around, and not that you know, there's so many mothers that are the breadwinners, but I was a 15 year old kid earning money, and the pressure on each event became making money for me to be able to continue training or to be able to pay rent or uh, I bought a house when I was 16 so that I could put some money into it and set myself up after swimming. Bought but a house at 16? At 16, yeah. So, so it was it was tight times for oh you yeah. and your mum? Yep, absolutely. Talk to and me about that. All very basic things. Um, you know, food was, when I was growing up, was minute steak or just really budget items and everything went on lay-by and you, I never, I always had second-hand bikes or I, and it gives me a great gratitude for money and the hard work into earning things that I can't just go out and buy whatever I want. I will work hard and save up for it. So I've learnt all those skills, but it was tricky because it put so much pressure on every event. So in my event in particular, so not just breaststroke, but swimming in general, we're very, we have a lot more pressure because the difference between Olympic gold and Olympic silver is huge. And the amount of pay that you receive and incentive money to go on to the next Olympics is huge. And a lot of people have this misconception about when you win medals that you win money 
on that performance, but it's actually not. You win money in an incentive to go to the next Olympics. Okay. So if that was your last Olympic game, so say you won gold at Beijing and you weren't going on to London 2012, you didn't win whatever prize money it was for that because uh-huh. you had to indicate that you were going to compete in four years' time. So it's not like a case of you win gold medals, you get this certain amount of money. It's a case of you win money to keep you going. Um, and so for me, it was always just constant, a reminder that you need to keep going to the next Olympics. But every race had pressure on it because the difference between winning gold and silver was a difference of, you know, probably $150,000 in wow. endorsement money or funding money or anything. And that's a huge difference when you're, when you're trying to fund two people. Um, and I don't think a lot of people realise that. I think people have this misconception that swimmers in particular make a lot of money and we absolutely don't. And the funding at the time when I was 15, 16 was, get this, $20,000 a year. That's it. That's it from the government. And so people think, oh, you're getting paid a fortune from the government. $20,000 did not cover, I reckon, three months' worth of physio, nutrition, psychology, uh, massage, or anything else, or coaching fees, it didn't cover it. So we're not making any money out of it, and I think it's even less now. Have a sip here, Earl Grey. Tell me, you, you relate a great story in the book about a sponsor. Um, spilled it all over oh, my Oh, no, jumper. you spilled it. That's right. It's tea, see, if it's oh, coffee. Right. See, see, that's, oh, that's <laughs> it was coffee that would have stained. Apparently I've never drunk Earl Grey tea before. That's um, why I can't wear white. Have another sip here. That's tea. right, yep. Um, you relate a great story about a sponsor providing you with a car. Yes. And just the, like, like yeah. the, the sheer joy <laughs> reading it, the sheer joy in your face now. It was like you were given a, a Lamborghini or, or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Oh, this was huge in my life because um, it was just a local Ford dealer and um, I had my eyes on this lime green, like horrendous colour, lime green Ford Falcon it was, XR6, and I just got my licence. So being a bogan Queenslander that I am, <laughs> that was my idea of a dream car was just to have this um, XR6 Falcon and um, because at the time I think around 2000 I think Grant Hackett had the Hackett Gold in Holden the Golden Holden Golden Holden Holden, um, but you know what Hackett will probably forget that I've probably just reminded him (laughs) that there was a Hackett Gold I still remember that (laughs) and um, the absolute honour of having a colour named after you and a Holden made but the lime green one was for me if I won a gold medal in Athens. And so I had my dream, I had my eyes on this prize of what I wanted to achieve and I had en- I ended up winning bronze in the 100, which was really quite a shock, and silver in the 200 because I was more than capable of winning. But I was beaten by a Chinese breaststroker and that shattering, crushing dream of, you know, I had worked so hard for this and the promise that I was going to win it because um, I think I had a Ford Laser at the time. So this was a real upgrade. Like this was my Liesl Jones's Lamborghini in my eyes was this green Falcon. So that crushing disappointment of going, I'm not going to get my car. And then at the time I was criticising, criticised for looking sour and which was just, you know, a fraction and moment in time. And yeah, that was the first games that I realised things don't necessarily go as you planned people will criticise you for what you do and you may as well just be who you are and own it because people will criticise anyway. So that was a big, big learning lesson for me that you're not always going to get the goals that you work so hard for and that you probably deserve, but someone was just better than me on the day. So 
I didn't get it. So on on that, and you're talking about criticism again. I was lucky enough to be there that night, yes, um, because I was working with Seven, and I had the night off, and I went with the. Uh, How did you get a night off? They never give well, you a night I off. Know. <laughs> I know it was extraordinary. I think I've been doing a lot of work oh, prior you probably to that. Did. Just probably yeah, made yeah, yeah. a night off for the whole. You show. probably went to hospital because you um, were comatose. Yeah. You're tired. Oh, and the food in Athens. Oh, horrible. Yeah. yeah. No, Everyone I, thinks oh, it's so glamorous oh, when you no, travel, and they you just give you budget, budget. Yeah. yeah. I don't know what your operation was like. I remember getting into Athens into the media village we're going off track now and then i'm saying but mate there's no window in my bedroom he's like oh no that'll be installed in the next couple of days sure. i'll talk about the glass and then once you went into the toilet you couldn't close the door because yes. it hit the basin that's right and uh, also you couldn't flush the toilet because uh, the plumbing was not good enough so the athlete's village was shocking the same well, yeah. yeah and i remember I, I can't remember who it was but someone um flushed paper down the toilet and flooded the whole yeah. apartment so you yeah, know it's just things like that i was there with the late Rebecca Wilson um, having a couple of beers and we watched you swim um, and you got a silver in the 200. Yes. Um, which you were one of the favourites for and the comments you're talking about were, I reckon there's been two of the most, um, I don't know what the word is, worse is not the right word, but two two of the most, um, I don't know what the word is, way off articles about you in your career that I still shake my head at. One was the comments that Dawn Fraser said you looked sour. I was a spoilt brat, yeah. Yeah, that yeah. you're a spoilt brat. And I remember reading at the time thinking, well, one, you're a legend of Australian sport, you probably should be supporting this young girl, and two, she's just given everything to try and win and she hasn't won. Yeah, She's not exactly going to be over the moon. No. And the problem was, I think, when it comes from someone like that who's done it before and... I would never criticise anyone in that situation if I hadn't lived it or didn't... I just... If you don't have an understanding of the situation, I would never criticise. Like, I would never comment on something that you've been through that I've never been through because I don't understand Mm. it. So to be in that situation and not knowing a thing about me, not, not taking the time or energy to even look into my history or, you know, that this was the difference between me putting food on the table and me not putting food on the table or so it, that I don't think that constitutes a spoilt brat comment. It was kind of a very left of field comment that was so far from the truth because I was so never once in my life have I ever been spoiled with anything. I have worked my ass off for every single thing that I earned. Every little bit of money that I earned went back to my family to support my mum. Um, I was paying my mum a wage at the time. And so she was helping me with, you know, shopping and cooking and cleaning and putting a roof over our head. So the comment is so far removed from the truth that I could just never imagine saying that about someone else, like from the outside looking in, because I don't have an understanding of the situation. Um, And when you look more into the story, you realise that you sort of criticise other people, you make comments to other people, but you have no idea what's going on in the background Mm. of how hard people are doing it. And unless you've walked in their shoes, you can't really comment. So I think that was more what was more hurtful about it because it was so wrong and that's obviously what grabs headlines is because Dawn said it or that makes it front page and then that spreads to other people and people go, oh, she's spoilt, look at her, like a fraction in time of this picture when really I'd just been working my ass off for four years so that I could make enough money to actually get by, not just pay for food. And, yeah, I think that was probably what made it so hurtful was that it was such, it was so far from the truth. 
Um, and look, if I was another athlete, well, I can't even think of any examples, but who was truly like, you know, driving Lamborghinis mm. and had, you know, houses all over the world and I was like, eh, I don't want to do this. Like, sure, totally credited, but it just was so far. It was more so I actually need, I have a mortgage to pay right now. I'm 16 years of, I was 18 at Athens. I have a mortgage to pay and I want to continue on and I do want to win gold because I've worked my ass off for it. Yeah, so I think that's what made it so hurtful, especially being an 18-year-old girl when you probably really just needed like a psychologist to work work through it. And you came home and you won. Yeah. You won at that I had a gold, silver and a bronze and and a world record, I think. Exactly. An extraordinary Olympics. Um, But you felt a little bit of that, you talk about the ticket tape parade when you Mm. came home and you felt a little bit of this... um, that the Australian public was believing this about you. Absolutely. And that's the hard thing is when, you know, I haven't done anything wrong. I haven't, you know, I haven't committed a criminal offence or anything. And then this is where I started to learn about the how the game that media that you have to play. So, and I became very defensive and I put up a brick wall because I was like, well, if I speak my honest truth and and feel how I honestly feel, I'm going to be criticised for it. So I sort of really stonewalled a lot and just shut it all off and just gave the the best answer that yep. looked good and everyone wanted to hear and I just became something that was not myself because yes I was I'm more hard on myself than anyone else could possibly be. I've you try to beat me with a stick, I've already beaten myself with a stick at that that stage, I'd, I'd already done it, beaten myself 10 times over because I didn't win or I didn't do this or I didn't do that. And so this is where I started to learn that you just have to say the, the thing that everyone wants to hear and mm. it's all lollipops and rainbows and, oh, I won silver. Oh, I'm so happy. It's like, no, I've worked f- for four years to win gold and I'm capable of winning gold and I'm angry at myself that I haven't because I haven't done the the things in the race that I should have done or put too much pressure on myself. Um, so when you, um, and we'll talk about when you touch in Beijing and you've won, when you touch in Athens and you've come second, what's the initial thought you have? Oh, my God, I don't think I can deal with this or I've done it again or this was the natural, I was supposed to win gold because I won silver in Sydney and Megan had retired. So I was like, well, naturally, you know, and hadn't heard anything about the Chinese swimmer that won or hadn't, I was like, well, I'm next in line. So just that shock, I think, of going, I don't know how to deal with this. This is not the outcome I expected or, hmm. yeah, it's um, it's a pretty unique feeling. I don't think many people can say that they've experienced that no. and the cameras were right on you. And um, I saw a picture the other day, someone posted it on Instagram, I think, and just the wall of photographers that are there. And you don't feel it at the time, but you're just the clicking of the cameras and you know that they're all facing you because on your face you're going, I've just won silver, it's not gold, I don't know, you know, just the shock and they're waiting for that glimpse moment in time where they can capture you looking disappointed when you're sort of turning to the side or mm. something, you know. Um, yeah, so it's, yeah, that disappointment, yeah, at the time was just, you can't, I will never feel that again, I don't think. So as a... Um as a true champion, which you are a true champion, Jonesy, what did, what did you learn from defeat? You learn so much more from defeat than you ever will from wins and that made me a much stronger person. I think I probably picked up some things that I wish I didn't do, like the stonewalling and 
not being true in my answers and just giving a fluffy, everyone wants to hear this response, so I'll just give that because, you know, so I regret sort of becoming someone else that I wasn't really. I think I learnt a lot about myself that I could pick myself up again and about tenacity. Tenacity is actually one of my favourite words, but, <laughs> you know, being that tenacious, you know, you've had defeat and then four more years working for working your guts out at 4am every day. It's a long time. It's a it? long time. And people forget that as well about swimmers in particular. We have once every four years, my race lasts a minute and five seconds if it goes well and um, minute and seven if it's terrible. But I have a minute and five seconds once every four years to prove myself. That's it. I've worked for four years for this moment. So, I don't even know how that would translate to real life. Like if you'd been working for a promotion for four years, mm. you'd put in the extra hours. You got up at four o'clock. You did six hours of, you know, physically grueling training every day for six days a week for, you know, the next four years. And then you stand in a room and your boss says, nah, not good enough. It's like within yeah. a minute, five seconds. And then you go, right, back to the drawing board, four more years. How do you do that? Like... I have learnt so much that skill of going back to my office, back to my cubicle, what went wrong? How do we fix this? What can we do better? How will we win? How do we deal with other competitors? Working on the mind, working on everything, um, dealing with outside criticism, going back to my work cubicle and figuring all that out to start again for the next four years. And then again, in five, four years' time, I've got a minute and five seconds to prove myself again. And you hope that you cross all your fingers and your toes that it's going to work. And, and it did for you. And it did. In Beijing. So you're Luckily. On the, well, <laughs> I, I think from what you're talking about, it's not, <laughs> it's not, there's not, there's not much work. luck involved. <laughs> so you walk out onto the pool deck in Beijing. You tell me the story from there. I don't remember a lot about it and I think all your best races you don't remember much at all, which is so this is unfortunate. This 100 100-metre breaststroke. And this is the first one. So I've still got the 200 to go. I'm probably more physically prepared for the 200 than I am the 100, but I preferred the 100. I really enjoyed it. The amount of times you got out of the pool and said to me, I'm never swimming this 200, 200 again, again, yes, and then I retired it towards <laughs> yeah. the end. Yeah. Um, but I was physically better at the 200. But Rebecca Sony was my competitor at the time. Um, Chinese swimmer had retired. Uh, Rebecca Sony, for, we'd been going back and forth for many years. She was better at the 200 as well, but this battle for the 100 was going to be on. And she was brutal. Like she had posted some really fast times throughout the year. I was very well aware that she was the girl to beat. And we, I think we sort of just stepped up behind the blocks. And I was like, I just really hope this goes the way I want it to go because I've worked, this has now been 12 years mm. to that point of all this training. And I was like, please, just whoever's out there listening, can you please just help me? I just... I deserve this. I've worked hard for this and I've been through, you know, all the crap before and this is my time. And um, I don't know who was looking out for me that day, but I was just like, come on, just put all this together. We had this race plan. I was working with um, Rowan Taylor at the time. No. Was I working with Rowan? Yeah. Yes, I was. Yeah. And I had just put everything. I was like, you know what to do. Just let it happen. You just have to trust the process and let this go because it's not up to you who swims better. You just have to control what you're doing. And so I do remember the turn and I do remember just glimpsing out of my eyes, Rebecca Sony was there and I was like, oh gosh, right next to me. I was like, can you just go away? Um, and what then, happened to your black curtains? Yeah, the black curtains had disappeared that day. <laughs> and um, 
And I just, I do remember feeling good in that last 15 metres. I was like, just find whatever you've got. I don't care where you have to find it. If it's in your big toe, just find whatever you've got left. And I just put it on the line. And I'm now looking at the footage, I just pulled away from everyone. And um, I think it was about two body lengths or something in the end. And I Do you know at that stage? No, not at all. So you don't know where anyone is? It's really funny because when you swim breaststroke, because your head pops up all the time, it's like, hey, 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 look at the crowd. So and it goes quiet, and you can hear the whooshing of the water in your ears, and yeah, it's it's, and you go, and it gets louder and obviously more intense as you get closer to the wall. You go, either someone's really close to me, or I'm about to break a world record. One of the two. And when I hit the wall, I just took a couple of seconds. Or it was probably a fraction of a second. It felt like five minutes. But I was like, please just, I don't know who's listening. Please just let it be a number one next to my name. And you turn around to the scoreboard and you're like, I think I was in lane four or five or something. And I just turn around and it's like Lisa Jones, one next to us. I was like, thank you, thank you, thank you. Like just relief, you know, just no, no happiness, no elation, just relief, just going, thank you, whoever was listening. I appreciate whatever you did. Um, just I can get rid of everyone's comments now. I can just – I've done it for myself. So is an Olympic gold medal after that long everything it's cracked up to be? It is in one way and it's not in others. So it is because I can say I've achieved it and no one can ever take that away from me. I will – forever be in the record books as an Olympic gold medalist and it doesn't matter whether people disagree with you or that you were better than someone else, they can never take that away from me. And so that's everything it's cracked up to be. The actual physical medal itself, no, because it sits in a bank safe. I never look at it. I never sit there and just, you know, wallow in the, you know, my own awesomeness or anything. I just sort of, it just sits in a bank safe and... um it's just kind of a token gesture, I guess, of the... I, I guess it's all your hard work put into a medal, really, but it's just an item and it means nothing to anyone else but me. But I'm very glad I've got it and I don't, that I did win it. So I'm in two minds about it, that I'm very, very glad I kept going and kept... because it does mean so much to me. Back to Liesl in a tick. Next week on the Howie Games, we are hitting the waves with 2012 World Surfing Champion Joel Parkinson. You mentioned Andy Irons there, who was one out of the box, triple world champion, a very good friend of yours. How did it affect you when he passed away? Because he obviously he had his problems, Joel. Yeah. Um, it was hard not to be on tour at that time in Puerto Rico when, when he passed because... All the guys on the tour looked like they were hurting so hard. Um, Did it I'm, shock you when you found out? It shocked me when he passed, yeah. It, it, I mean, we all knew he had his struggles, man. He he was very bipolar and had a lot of, you know, he had a lot of mental issues and he used to get a lot of noise in his head. And But when he left here after a couple of weeks of training and surfing, he was such in a healthy mind frame. Um, it was, you know, three months later he passed and or two and a half months but um yeah I mean it was, it's still one of the one that I guess cuts cuts you up you know losing a friend to such a battle that's Parco next week on the show in previous series we have mentioned private Howie Games podcasts if you have loved ones friends someone that has inspired you or someone close to you whose story you want to be recorded for posterity 
please send us an email at thehowiegames at hotmail.com. That's Howie, H-O-W-I-E, thehowiegames at hotmail.com. We'll try and organise for me to sit down and have a chat just like a normal episode. It's not for broadcast, but for a family memory. Back to Liesl. Typically in a fairy tale, which sport never is, Jonesy. <laughs> I wish it was. Yeah. At, at this point, it's like, the you know, the girl that burst onto the age of 15, won a silver medal, went through hardship, now won an Olympic gold medal. It's just all roses and happiness and unicorns and angels. Um, but, again, reading your book, and this is the bit that um, – you know, like, as you said, you, you didn't tell anyone, so no one had any idea. Then the next four years, being Olympian, your life is governing four-year blocks. Yes, so that's, that's the yeah, way that's we're discussing it. at the moment. The next four years sound like they were some of the toughest. Probably, they probably were the toughest times of your life. Yeah, and which I, after you've won, I know the natural thought is well. Wow, she's yes, done it. It's happy it. days now. Yeah, and a lot of people don't tell you about the come down afterwards. No one ever speaks of that. No athlete ever says, oh, well, I finally won it and then fell into a dirt hole and just couldn't get myself out of it. And, and that's what happened? That's what happened, yeah. I didn't. I was not mentally prepared for actually achieving it because we never spoke about it because you didn't want to jinx it. And you got to the point where you go, well, you've won it. Well, now what? Where Where do you go from here? And that's why so many athletes retire, like Megan Gendrick. She won gold in her first Olympic Games and never swam after that because where to from there? Mm. You can't get any further. You can't – Olympic gold medals and Olympic gold medal, what else is there to achieve? And so many breaststrokers do it, win Olympic gold out of nowhere. They're 15, you never see them again. And because no one prepares you for that feeling afterwards, that fanfare and that six months of – wonderful, oh, you've got to pinch yourself, I'm an Olympic gold medalist. But then no one prepares you for after that when you've got to get back in the pool and start again for another four years. Or um, I can't even think of an example, but, yeah, just that sort of grind, back to the grind. And then I know the last four years I was tossing and turning as to whether I was going to continue or whether I was going to retire. And I had a lot of people in my ear saying, and from people very close to me going, yeah, but if you don't swim, what will you do? And that stung so much because I just achieved what I wanted and I didn't know what else I was going to do. I didn't have anything outside of swimming and that kind of, yeah, but you'll, you'll always be a swimmer. It's like, well, no, actually this ends and mm. I, don't, I don't know how to deal with that and I don't know what to do. And everyone always tells you, all athletes always tell you, well, retirement's hard and you'll take a long time to figure out what you want to do. I'm six years retired now. I still have no clue what I want to do and... I feel like I've been in limbo for six years, just sort of dabbling here and dabbling there. And you will never find anything you love as much as swimming. Everyone says that Um, because I love sport and it was a huge part of my life. It was my whole childhood and my teenage years and my 20s and early 20s and it's still such a big part of my life and I will forever for the rest of my life and I'm very proud to say Liesl Jones the swimmer. I will always be that. But when you don't do it anymore or you're thinking about not doing it anymore and you don't know what life looks like, that gets scary. So something that's happened, Jonesy, in the last probably 15 years and it's often been led by athletes, which many things are, which has been a fantastic thing, is that the um, secrecy and the, the darkness and the, the, the fear of discussions about mental health have started to dissipate yep um it's great yeah it is it is 
and I've got a mate that works in this space, Wayne Schwoss, who, for those listening, does a podcast called Pucker Up, which is absolutely fantastic, and um, it, it talks a lot about mental health and athletes. Awesome. Tell me about your mental health journey in that four-year period. I would say most people would say that their journey is very similar, that they kind of kept putting it off for a long time. There was that sort of niggling voice in the back of your mind and all of these moments up until this point, you know, we've talked about Athens and we've talked about Sydney and and going through, you know, family stuff and uh, just stuffing it down for so many years and going, it's fine, we're not going to acknowledge it, we're not going to talk about it, it's just not there. Uh, and one thing Ken always talked about was we don't work with sports psychologists because only weak people talk to sports psychologists. So sports psychologists for us at a very formative time in my life were very much on the outer. They weren't really allowed to work with us. And it wasn't until probably about 2007, 2008, I started really working with an amazing sports psychologist. And then all this stuff started unravelling and she was help holding my hand through all of it, which I was very lucky. But... I didn't realise it was even happening to me until I was just in this fog that I couldn't get out of. And obviously looking back now, it's depression. And I always think about depression as like this fog that settles into a city. You know, when you see Brisbane on the TV and it's got the city skyline, but there's all fog that sits underneath it. I kind of feel like it's that because underneath it's grey and really dark and you can't see two metres, you can't see the car driving in front of you. But on top of it, if you stand at Mount Kutha, it's actually sunny and it's beautiful on top. It's actually a lovely day. But you get caught in this like really dark and you can't get out of it. And I started to fall into that. And I'm usually a pretty happy person. I'm mm. usually pretty good and pretty chatty. And I wasn't myself. I just turned into this person that was crying all the time. And I was like, I don't want to train. I don't want to do this. I didn't. We were in Sierra Nevada in Spain and beautiful. Like if I went there now, it would be the most glorious place. I felt like I was in prison, like I was just stuck in my own thoughts and this whirlwind of like fog and I can't break out of it and just couldn't work. And I was like, the only way I see out of this is to take my own life because I couldn't see a clear day ahead. I couldn't see myself retiring and the judgment coming from that, which there wasn't any because that's my choice. And I just couldn't see a way out of it. And that's when I got to my lowest point where I, I'm obviously not dealing with this very well. No one knows about it. I was supposed to do a World Cup event in Barcelona. It was actually my favourite event. I used to love it. And I couldn't even see myself there. I was like, I don't want to be there. I don't want to go. And we pulled out of it and we had to lie and say that I was sick and went home. So we couldn't even be honest then and say that she's dealing with a mental health issue and needs to go home. We couldn't even say that without sort of being honest about it. And that kind of makes me a little bit sad because I feel like maybe now we probably would have. I was going to say, do you think, Lisa Jones, if you're still swimming, going for 19 oh, yeah. Olympics, you, you yep. would say that? I would say it now and I would be more open that it's a mental health issue or because more people are aware of it now and we've got so many great organisations out there that are helping with mental health issues. We're talking about it more and that's the best thing. And I, I didn't cop any judgment or criticism for my mental health. I wouldn't now and I wouldn't judge or criticise anyone else if they did. We just sometimes need a bit of a helping hand. So I don't know why we were so scared to say it, mm. whether it was going to impact what my competitors thought of me, but there's so many of my competitors out there that have had the same thing. So we're not alone. More people are dealing with it than we ever th thought possible. So, yeah, we've all 
I think everyone sort of touched on it every now and then. Either they've lived with someone mm. with mental health issues, um, they've got them themselves or, yeah, but I think the greatest thing for me at that time as a psychologist, she was just instrumental in getting me through and medication, obviously, that's what helped me. You related a story in your book about your coach coming in or knocking on your door when you're in Sierra Nevada, when you're at the lowest of yep. low. Mm. And you're you're actually contemplating mm. how you're going to take your own life. Yep. It it's I've done a podcast with a fellow called Jake Edwards who attempted to commit suicide, mm. and it's a really hard thing to know what the right or the wrong questions to ask are because mm. if you've um, done your shoulder in the pool, yeah, I can. What's how's your rehab? Yeah, what are you doing? Did yeah. you have surgery? Yeah, you got your right. arm in a sling. I can see that you're not. You know, it's recovering or whatever. Yeah, whereas something like this, it's a, it's a really difficult thing to yeah. to talk about in many ways. And I, it's probably okay for me now. I feel I'm very open and happy to talk about it because I feel like that person is so removed right. from me. That feels like a very different person to me that didn't know how to deal with this voice that was in my head or just breaking out of it. And now that I'm on the other side of it. I can see how to get myself out of it. And I've had moments, um, particularly when Ken died, I went through this moment of grief and was really struggling for a week and I thought, oh, no, I'm going back in this depression. And the fog just lifts eventually, but it's knowing that you're going to get out of it. And I understand that people have their own issues and maybe don't want to talk about it because I've had friends myself when I was going through it that didn't want to talk about it because that that opened something inside of them that they didn't want. They didn't want to go to that place. Whereas for me, I'm more than happy to talk about it because A, it might help someone else. Mm. B, it's not me anymore. I'm removed from that person. And C, I'm proactively always working on my mental health to make sure I don't go back to that place. So whether it's meditation, like guided meditation or working on anxiety or, you know, breathing or yoga or finding what works for me. So... So I'm fine to talk about it um, and I don't find any questions offensive because if you haven't suffered it before, you it's so foreign to you. Mm. Yeah, it is, which is why it's a, we can all relate to breaking an arm or a leg yeah. but we can't all relate to what you're talking about. Physical it, pain and mental pain are very different. And you get sympathy for physical pain. Of course you do. You get an arm around the shoulder, you're all right, champ, yep. but with, with mental pain yeah. you don't necessarily get that. So what does the medication do? And how, how do you work that into being an elite athlete at the same time? Yeah, well, um, it's, it's probably not a funny story. I probably shouldn't joke about it. But I was on medication and it just sort of it's just sort of numbs it a bit, I think. it. Everyone thinks, oh, they're happy pills. I'll make you happy again. It doesn't. You have to do the work with it. So, you know, I guess there's all this, you know, you've got to work with a psychologist and move through it. And I was very lucky. I know a lot of people and from personal experience that have just gone to a GP and had medication and done. I don't think that you need that two-pronged approach of medication and talking to a psychologist. And look, I know they're expensive. I work with one all the time, but it's so worth it just to chat to someone who is not trying to fix your problem. They're not trying to say the right thing or they're not trying to ask the right questions. They're just having a chat and they, they help you sort out your problem. And I think that's what helped me get out of it was being able to talk about it. And then I've got my own techniques and strategies now when I'm not feeling great and I can just call mm. on those. So 
Oh, I can't remember what the original question well, was. How, oh, the medication. Well, what yep. is it doing to you and how are you competing at a world-class level at the same time? Yeah, well, and then I was okay to come off the medication and then um, I stupidly, I didn't seek medical advice. I just took it once every second day and started having psychotic episodes that I thought I was hitting people with my car and I would get home and check my bonnet, make sure there's no blood on my bonnet because I was like, did I hit that person? I would check in the rear view to make sure they cross the road safely. So I do not recommend that is just don't do that. And so this was from reducing the dosage? Yeah, so I was sort of, I I was ready to come off it, but I wasn't doing it the right way. So, you know, obviously seek medical, speak to your doctor about how you're going to do it. I just did it the stupid way. Um, But yeah, it's kind of, that was a real big lesson. But yeah, still training. Um, I probably wasn't in a very positive environment in terms of training squads that I was in. Um, I was self-sabotaging a lot. I was eating. What is self-sabotaging? Like in terms of I would do a training session then get an arm and croissant on the way home. So like almost. Self-sabotaging or living a normal life. Living a normal life, yes, absolutely. But as an athlete, that's very abnormal. But more so in the back of my mind going, I don't want to make another team or I'm good enough to make it, but I'm going to try everything to not make it so I don't have to do this anymore. So my hand is forced into that decision and yet I still kept making teams. So I was like, oh no, like I've got to live this out. But so it's kind of weird because it's amazing that I went to four Olympic Games and I'm very fortunate that I made it to four and the first Australian swimmer to do so. But in in the other hand, I was sort of like undoing it all. It's very bizarre, but mental health does really weird things to you. So yeah, just... Yeah, it was a big lesson to learn. So a lot of our swimmers, since it's become a more open topic, have struggled with mental health. From someone that's been there, is that just because that's a cross-section of society or has the swimming lifestyle, and we need to look at the swimming lifestyle because it's um, playing a part in this? There's, I think there's two things going on there. I think, yes, it is part of society, sport in general, but then there's that niche market of swimming in particular that is another level on top of that. So when you look at athletes, they're putting their heart and soul into everything to achieve and they're wired a little bit differently. They're usually a bit, you know, sort of selfish and focused on things and achieving dreams and, and working hard for it. But then you go another level up with swimmers because the difference between gold and silver is 0.01 of a second. James Magnuson. Yeah, it's exactly a great example to use. And that's the difference between gold and silver. That's the difference between treated like a gold medalist or treated like a silver medalist, which is different. I never understood that when he got beat by Nathan Adrian and he was a failure. Yeah. Was it one one hundredth of a second, Jonesy? Silver medal at the Olympics, 0.01 of a second. Like you can't even imagine what 0.01, that is not failure. Like please, that's... You're at an Olympic Games to start with, so... That's a real problem we have in this country as well, but that's probably a discussion for another day. Yeah, but and you compare even, um, you know, American swimmers with their college system. We punch so far above our weight in Australia, we don't get the micro amount of funding that they do. Yeah, so that's, you know, like we could do a whole podcast on that, I reckon. <laughs> that's but, Lisa Jones series too. <laughs> yeah, government funding. Mm. Exciting. Um, but, yeah, it's we're, we're in such a niche, we're in such a high-level, elite, small bubble of people, and when you leave that bubble, you don't know how to function. 
And I, I get really frustrated because when people talk about other athletes, and I won't name names, but obviously people that have struggled since they've retired and very publicly, it's I my heart breaks for those people because I understand why it's happening. And a lot of people go, oh, well, you miss the limelight. You miss being famous. You miss this and that. It's actually so far from the truth because those athletes would don't give a shit about those things. They don't care. Like it's not being in the limelight is they don't care about that. They enjoy that sense of being good at something, going to work with your best mates every single day, um, working hard and striving for things and, um, you know, that battle and the competing and it has nothing to do with the limelight or being paid a heap of money because I guarantee those people would give it up in two seconds if that was the case, if they if that meant that they felt happy and comfortable in their life. Um, and, yeah, it breaks my heart when people criticise it because they, those people would give it up in two mm. seconds. The next four-year block, all of a sudden you're at London, which in some ways you look at the results and I think you came fifth in your individual yeah, event. Yeah, fifth or sixth. Or, fifth, uh, fifth or sixth, yeah, yeah. Probably your, um, well, statistically, yeah. your worst Olympics. Yep. Um, from your position, reading your book, it was your best Olympics. Absolutely, yeah. But... I couldn't think of the word before when I was thinking about the two things that came up. One was Dawn Fraser and the words failed me. The word is shameful. Yes. It's um, two of the most shameful comments, articles, I reckon, in my time following sport. Um, and it's uncomfortable even to sit across from you and bring it up. But there, there was photos taken, an article written, which was relating to your weight leading into the Olympics. And I remember reading and thinking that, that is just so far wrong, it's incomprehensible. You're a young woman doing everything you can, training your guts out, and people are commenting. Well, one person was commenting, an article was written with photos, and then you had to go out on the pool deck in your bathers. Um, I can't imagine how difficult that would have been and how hurtful that would have been because it was sh- it was a shameful period for Australian journalism, Australian sport, whatever you want to say, I reckon. It was hard in the way that... No one knew that I had been dealing with depression and that probably about 18 months prior to that photo being taken, I was on a bathroom floor looking at taking my own life. And it hurt the most because no one knew the backstory. No one knew what was going on. And yes, to be honest, I did not look like I was in the best shape. I probably could have done with a spray tan. That would have helped a fair (laughs) bit. Um, But to see where I had come from, I was proud that I was even standing on that pool deck because... 18 months earlier, I could have died because I just didn't want to be doing that. And so to kick someone when they're already down and, and in their defence, they didn't know I was had been suffering depression and nearly took my own life because that was not pu- public knowledge. But it hurts so much because I'm, at that time I was 27, I think, had grown a pretty thick skin in media. If they had done that to a 15-year-old girl, I swear I'd I would hate to think I'd probably end up in jail for what I would do to that person because it it hurt me and I've got a really thick skin. I can't imagine you could ever say that about a 15-year-old girl, so why is it okay to say it about me? And we're now in a time, I mean, this is what, what was that, 2012, so, mm. you know, nearly six years ago. We're now entering this time where females are now becoming really strong and have a great voice and I'm loving it. And that would not be okay. It would not be okay to say that. And 
I remember Whoopi Goldberg was on The View and it was mentioned on The View and she said, you can't say this. So it went to the States <laughs> and she mentioned it and said, you just can't speak about someone like that. And it made me so disappointed because I I love Australia and I compete for Australia and I wear green and gold so proudly. I am so bogan Aussie. I love it. You know, I'm just, I am Aussie pride through and through. And to have someone from my own sporting journalist community attack me personally on how I looked was more hurtful than anything. Criticise my performance. Absolutely. Go for it. It was not my greatest performance, but don't criticise how I look because I had been through some of the most painful mental health journey that anyone could experience and you're criticising me for how I look. And yeah, it was not a great photo. It was a pretty terrible angle. And yeah, look, I don't deny I was not in the greatest shape of my life. I didn't look like I did when I was in 18 or, you know, 22 at Beijing. But also I wasn't starving myself on a soup diet either. So, yeah, I had, yeah, I had earned my spot on the team too, which was the big thing. You know, at the trials, well, probably about what, oh, it was probably a couple of months earlier. Yeah, would have been. I had won my event. So I earned my spot on the team. And did it in the qualifying time. That's not easy to do. No. It's not like they gave me a ticket and said, oh, here you go, LJ. Like, uh, we feel, three, we'll, so we'll, we'll feel sorry for you. We don't have anyone else. Off you go. Free. Yeah, exactly. It's, that's not, it's not the case. You have to earn your spot on the team. And I did that as well. So, yeah, uh, I've never felt anything like that. And I hope I never feel anything again because that was – I just – I just remember Mel Schlanger, um, she was my roommate at the time. She was on Twitter and she was on her phone. I sort of wake up and she said, oh, just don't look at your phone today. I just don't think it's going to be very good for you. I was like, what are you talking about? She goes, look, something's happened and something's come out. Um, just just don't look at it. And I was like, oh, God, what is it? So, yeah. And then obviously I was made aware of it. But the other thing was I had no support around that. I still had to face all the I could hear the cameras just following me, like just mm. trying to get the next photo or the next story. And I was just like, everyone's just watching me now. It's just, and no one, no one even mentioned it to me. Head coach didn't say, he was like, oh, I think the media manager was at the pool already and said, oh, just so you know, there's something in the papers. I was like, yeah, I've already dealt with it. For three hours this morning, I've already dealt with that. So there was no support there. And I think, I think that was a big failure on their part for not supporting because, I would hate if that happened to my teammate. I would be the first person there to go. Oh, it's horrible. Let's it's deal just, with this. It's or just horrible. yeah, it's yes. I was an older person on the team, but I still don't know how to deal with that. I haven't dealt with that before. Um, to wait for me to get to the pool, not not even to wait back at the village until we go and go. Okay, what's the strategy around this? How do you want to deal with this? Do you want to make a statement? Do you do you want to train somewhere else? None of that. I had to go to the main pool and deal with it. On my own, I was like, "Yeah, I've already got it. Thanks." In front of the world. In front of the world. Yeah. You mentioned um, the the strides that have been taken um, uh, by females in not just sport and society in the last five years, which obviously there's so much for us blokes still to learn. Um, <laughs> I've had this lesson. Coming, no, I, I have had this lesson really? coming my way in the last month, yep. and it's one I've been thinking about a lot. Yeah. Wow. Um, and now. With a with a daughter, mm. um, are we heading in the right direction? Slowly, 
I think so. Yeah, it's, um, you know, we talk about equality in sport and we talk about females earning equal pay. There's obvious differences and I've spoken about this before and it would be lovely to say in a world that we are paid equally in sport. We, we are well aware that there's differences and that female athletes don't draw the crowd and then people always argue, well, female tennis players only play three sets and males play five. And I was like, yeah, but why don't we just all do three or we all do five? Because I think females are pretty capable of doing it. Um, so I'm well aware of the differences and it's it's an argument that we could argue about. For, there'll be always 50% of people on one side, 50% on the other. I think we're slowly getting better, but even with, I think with body image, we're getting very, a lot better. And I think for females, but also males, we've got to be careful of that too, because there's a lot of males out there that are mm. struggling with body image issues and eating disorders and all of that. So yeah, we've got the pay, we've got the body image, um, equal rights. I think we're getting there slowly. How do you reflect on it all? How do you reflect on Liesl Jones, the nine-time Olympic medalist, four times at Olympic level to swim, 10 Commonwealth Games medals, world championships? You know, we could go on and on. Your Wikipedia page is about 37 minutes long <laughs> and that's just working through your medals. Yeah. How do you reflect on it all? Because that's why you're such a great subject for this podcast because you've had the highest of highs and you've had the lowest of lows. How do yeah. you reflect on it all? When I look back as a whole, I look at it as I worked my ass off, but geez, I was very fortunate. I am in a very fortunate position to be able to do what I love uh, or loved. I don't do it anymore, but I was fortunate enough to have the talent, the skills and the drive and determination to achieve an Olympic gold medal, which was my dream. I am very fortunate that we live in a country that supports our athletes and we want them to do well. I know you look at other countries around the world, they don't have that privilege. They're either war-torn or um, just don't have the funding for it. And we're so lucky to live in Australia that we everyone has an opportunity to get there and have support. I'm very fortunate to be yeah, in the position I'm in. I'm very fortunate with my family um, to have the support um, and just very fortunate to be surrounded by good people. So as much as a lot of hard work it went into it, I'm a very lucky person as well and lucky to be born in Australia, lucky to have everything that I've ever achieved and been lucky enough to have worked with the right people, put the right work in and achieved what I wanted. So... As much as that all looks a bit rosy, there's a few rocky bits in there as well, which we've spoken about. But but it's great that you can reflect on it with such yeah. a positive. Oh, like, it makes you smile. I can absolutely. See I, I, so it's worth it? Absolutely. And would I do it again? Probably not because I'm not as young as I was anymore. But um, my swimming career just makes me so happy and I wish everyone could have that opportunity to feel what it feels like to go what I've been through. Crappy bits and all. The, you've got to experience the crappy bits to appreciate the good bits. And I've had it all. I've been very lucky. It's made for an interesting book, which is always good. You don't want a boring book. And um, and the skills that I've got out of my swimming career will take me on for the rest of my life. I will forever use the skills that I've learnt, the, the tenacity, putting in the hard work, doing the extra yards when you don't want to, um, treating people correctly. And um, one of Ken's favourite sayings was, um, be nice to the people on the way up because you'll be sure to meet them on the way down. Mm. And that's stuck in my head for so long and I've always j- just tried to be a good person through it all and just be level-headed, just down to earth and 
Um, I'm very lucky for that, that I've got good people around me to bring me back to earth if anything ever goes wrong. We've talked about your book a couple of times. It's called <laughs> Body Lengths. Um, I could not recommend it more highly. As a man that obviously in my job has to read a, a, lot. a hell of a lot of sport <laughs> books and some I skipped through um, and yours I did not skip through <laughs> by you. any way, shape or form. And yet. it didn't put you to sleep. No, it didn't put me to sleep. Um, Jane, do you frequent listeners to this show will know that I have two children. Um the pickle and the big penguin. Um, the big penguin is six. The pickle is eight, and I normally have a chat with them about who I'm going to speak to. Yes, and whoever's most uh, invested and interested. Yes, um, and the pickle skies, he absolutely loves their swimming. Um, you you may have partly addressed this, but okay. they then ask a question. Of okay, so awesome. You get uh, the pickle. Cute. Hi, Liesl Pickle here. There's a really cool poster of you up at our local swimming school. My dad has told me all about your medals that you've won. Do you still wear them? Oh, Pickle, great question. You are you're at the Leopold Swim Centre, front and centre when you walk in. Yes, in, love it. It's probably speedos. a picture of me very old, like a long time uh, ago, looking nice and youthful. And every time <laughs> we walk past it, I say, now this this is a, an, an amazing, amazing uh, lady. But it's funny, what, and she's like, well, d- Dad, does she get out and wear them? Yeah, and a lot of people think you have them at home, and some people have them in the sock drawer, but mine sit in a bank safe. I want mine to be nice and safe. I worked 12 hard years mm. for those medals, so I don't wear them. Them very often. I have had a look at my silver medal from Sydney 2000. The silver's actually flaking off, right. so I should take it back and get it re-dipped right. or something, yeah. Um, but no, I don't get to wear them very often. I, I don't even... I just don't even take them out. It's in the city. It's They're too hard to get to. Because so. the pickle was of the opinion no. if she ever won an Olympic medal that She'd wear she them all would the time. wear it the whole time. See, it'd she be nice if it, it got you free public transport <laughs> yeah, or an upgrade to business class on a flight or... Free coffee. Free coffee. No, no, no don't I don't drink that. coffee. You just a free Earl Grey would be great. Um, <laughs> what else? What else? Could, uh, it, 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 I, around Olympics, it gets you from some free stuff, yeah. but now it'd probably be like, oh, it's probably fake or something. I bought was, it on eBay. I <laughs> wind this up now, but um, just as the pop into my head, we worked together at the Glasgow oh, Commonwealth the Games. the best trip ever. Yeah, it was. It was outstanding, which so was fun. 2014. And you know, uh, that's how I met Damon, my partner. I didn't it was know through that. a girl that uh, worked at the Glasgow Games. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Um, and we have the, the great pleasure in this industry of working with a lot of athletes. And um, I don't say this lightly. Some come in and you think, oh, wow, this is never going to work. <laughs> and others work in, walk in on the first day and you think, wow, how can they be that good yes, at this? Yeah. And you were the latter. You oh. were outstanding. Oh, I had a lot of help. I was with Matt White hosting Who's and he is the ultimate professional. Just what I. If I failed with Matt White, there'd be something seriously right. wrong with me. Like, he's the best of the best. He is very so. good. But you, you were vibrant, you were warm, and you were informative. Is is this an area – and it's hard because your specialist field becomes of real national interest every four years. I know. What a um, shame. Yeah, it is a shame. Is, is this an area you've thought about exploring because – you are outstanding at it. I well, thank you. That's very kind of you. But the Glasgow Games, I think, ruined it for me because it was so fun. I right. really enjoyed it. I just felt like I was in my element. I really just it was so easy for me. It's and then ten. I know. Cool I they were it was I don't know what they did, but it was just the best trip. And I thought, oh, this is going to be a breeze. And then you sort of realise, oh no, it's actually much harder if you do commentary yeah. or all of that. So um, you've got a lot more research. You know what? I just think we had the greatest time. We just mucked around and I think that came across really well and and I 
yeah, it's probably spoiled me a bit because it was so much fun. Mm. Uh, it is an area I really enjoy and obviously I want to support our athletes coming through and, and say good things about them and um, build them up and pump up their tyres as much as possible. So, yeah, it's I would love to do it a little bit more. I mean, media is fun. It's it's a dream job. It's it so, much, so easy. It is talking about sport. Oh, me. easy. Yeah. yeah, I could talk about it all day. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, oh, um, I won't go on for too long, but um, I think I said at the start you've always been my favourite. Oh, and, thanks, um, Howie. I, it, 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 it hurt me reading your book at times, mm. um, but to see you now in such a wonderful place and good luck with the wedding. Yeah, thanks. Um, by the time this goes. See, all that money I made throughout my swimming career, I've burnt it all on my yeah, wedding. Well, <laughs> well, I should pay for part of it because I made that much on you, buddy, getting first to the line. Um, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Um, you're a star and I've always said never get bet against the champ. Um, so may it just be unicorns and roses from yeah, here on in. that'd be awesome. Thank you. Good on you, Joe. Thank you so much to Liesl Jones for being so candid and so thoughtful. Pretty obvious I am a massive, massive fan and hopefully you are now as well. She is the champ. Next week, a man that surfs for a living and owns a brewery. Nice combo. That's Joel Parkinson next Thursday on the Howie Games. Until then, peace and love. And we can do it if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. If we try, try, try Listener